welcome back to the ICU Life and Recovery Podcast. My name is Mark and I am the host and this episode will be the continue of the discussion with Dr. Morgan. In this episode we'll be discussing about the advantages of diversity in ICU and its importance, ICU perception, the hardest and best things about working in ICU as well as me speaking about my experiences in ICU and what things I found difficult as well as addressing things about listening from the staff as to what the patient needs as well as ensuring communication and other humanizing factors. It is another great episode and I really hope that you enjoy it and thanks. So one of the the other things I'm going to go back to the the book because we've kind of weaved a, a tangent away from it but I want to try and kind of keep it as close as I can. Um, obviously, you, you spoke about diversity in ICU, and obviously that is very important. Uh, the many different viewpoints you have in a team, the more likely you are to get to a, the correct answer, uh, and the more sort of professional input you have, the more likely you are to get more things right. Is that how you feel about it, or...? Yeah, I think medicine is strange like that. And it's been described as being the most humane of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities. And that's what attracts many people to it. It's what attracted me to medicine. You know, my passion was, was science, but just having scientific answers wasn't enough. For me, it had to involve human aspects too. So it's the integration of those two. And although that's fantastic, it also brings challenges. And it means that there are rarely right and wrong answers in medicine. Medicine is a complete spectrum of gray. And that's even, even with tests. You know, we've heard about COVID tests and how reliable they are. You know, every test has a potential to be wrong just through statistics. Uh, and that's a complicated aspect to get across to professionals and families and public alike. So for me, increasing the scope of those professionals coming together is so important. I've described it as when you work in intensive care as a, as a doctor or consultant or a leader, it's often like being a conductor. You conduct an orchestra of care and at different points, different people are important. Sometimes it's really important to get the loud brass coming in and making big, bold decisions and surgical interventions and other things. Sometimes it's really important to get the really delicate, fine things uh, right, you know, the percussion sections. And sometimes they all need to work together in harmony. Uh, and I think that's what we try to bring to intensive care. You know, we don't have all the answers at all. Uh, Healthcare professionals don't have all the answers, but working together, then we can get closer. There's a person who taught me in medical school who still works in my hospital called Dr. Hughes. He's a neurologist. And I'll always remember a question he pitched at us just before graduating. And it's a very simple question. He asked, what do all patients and their families want of a healthcare professional or a doctor or a nurse, a physio, a speech and language therapist? And lots of people put their hands up and some people said a cure. Uh, but of course, palliative care, there isn't, there isn't a cure often. And it's the same in ICU. Some people put their hands up and said pain relief or to be pain free. 
and that's not always true. A diagnosis, somebody else suggested, sometimes there isn't a diagnosis or sometimes you know it. And his answer, and I think I've come more and more to agree, is that all patients and their families want somebody or a system to make sense of their story. And even if that story ends with, I'm sorry, there isn't a cure or treatment, or if that story ends with, well, this is the disease, this is the diagnosis, and this is what we're going to do. I think we're all, you know, we're all made of stories, uh, patients, families, doctors alike. And so for me, intensive care is conducting that orchestra of care to try to make sense of the stories of, of patients and their families. So I, I think, it, sorry, I was, I was kind of gently laughing there, but it, it wasn't uh, a knock at the seriousness of the discussion. It's just that Kate also uh, uses the, the symphony um, analogy as well, where I much prefer a village analogy, but it seems I'm on the other side of the, the, the thought pattern here. I think sort of general public belief of what ICU is, is that it's a bunch of machines uh, and there's some nurses and there's some doctors and that's that's the the extent of of thought pattern and in like my, my ICU, well I call it my ICU, I don't own it, I don't work in it, at the ICU I was a patient in his a six bed ICU in a district hospital so it's quite a quite a small unit in comparison to say the big the big cities like Glasgow and Edinburgh where you're maybe talking 60 bed units um so even in our small ICU yes there's doctors obviously there has to be doctors nurses yep got them physios dietitians pharmacy psychology you know the the sort of the forgotten uh, parts of it and and to me sort of my story the dietetics were were a big part of the puzzle because with mastoma I was very intolerant of most of the NG feeds so they were they were pumping NG feeds into me and it was it was coming straight out um I was not tolerant of them because they seemed to they seemed to have quite high fiber content which is which is great in, in most cases, but not particularly for someone who has a stoma. So they had to kind of figure out, you know, they had a puzzle to solve, as is the sort of ICU life. There's there's many puzzles and you try to find a solution. Uh, and they, they eventually did, and it was a low-protein one. And I think that first not having them right, so I wasn't getting nutritional support. And then eventually when we got the sort of answer that was going to so it's a low protein one so i think that's probably a reason why i had so much icu weakness afterwards but it seems to me that the sort of other professions particularly in sort of public perception are often forgot about everybody knows the doctors everybody knows the nurses they're i don't want to say the stars but they're like the, the doctors, the conductor, and the nurses are the first chair violin in your analogy. Uh, you know, they're, they're the sort of leaders of the, the orchestral music, but an orchestra just with violins, it's not going to, there's, there's no depth of sound. There's, you know, you have to have 
brass, you have to have percussion and all of these other parts and they all have to work together because if the if the brass are just firing out single notes they're, they're going to ruin the sound yeah i just the more i kind of learn about these things the more i kind of feel that that the rest are underappreciated because and it's not like the icu staff fault it just seems to be the general perception of the field and maybe it is because the rest of the wards, these people are not generally such integral parts of it. Physio is an integral part of like post-surgical wards, but in most other wards they're not. So I think they they kind of forgot about it. And it just seems. Do you do you feel that's the kind of perception that it's nurses and doctors, and then everyone else is kind of like not thought about, even though they have. Maybe not, I don't want to say less important a role, but perhaps less, they're brought in for very specific things, but those specific things are very important. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you have brought up the village analogy. And the more I think about it while you were speaking, I think you're right, actually, because a conductor is a one-way role. You, know, you conduct somebody else. And of course, intensive care isn't like that just as it's important sometimes for us to be leaders it's just as important for often you know, daily for us to be followers and i don't know and i will never know uh, as much as the dietitians about how to deal with the problems you had and so it's essential that i'm a follower and the dietitian is the leader in that aspect and therefore your village analogy perhaps is 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 much better actually and the truth is, I think that you're right, the public think of ICU as machines that go beep and powerful drugs and, and those things. We have very little in ICU actually that, that cures, <laughs> that saves. There's probably only three things, and that's surgery, antibiotics, maybe steroids, time, which is probably the most important thing we have, and care. You know, those are the only things that work. <laughs> Uh, yes, there are very strange, rare diseases where we need to use fancy drug X or machine Y, uh, but those are the those are the basis of everything. And what we do is use those fancy machines and drugs to give people time, time for their own body to heal, and time for those essential other specialties to care. I think going back to COVID again, I hope what people have seen through COVID certainly if they've been unwell or even seen through the media is that that definition of key worker now can be stretched so far <laughs> you know thinking about the case of the chap i'm meeting later this week who had ecmo the people who contributed to his care were enormous you know if it wasn't for the porters who were able to safely transport complex equipment he wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for the scrub nurses in theater he wouldn't have survived. The anaesthetists, uh, the speech and language therapists, the physios, uh, all, all of that, uh, that, you know, that's critically important. And from a personal perspective, uh, if you could see my video, I've got a ridiculous splint on my hand at the minute. I broke my hand um, a month or so ago on the way home from work. And of course, the first appointment was with the hand surgeon, who was fantastic, absolutely spot on. But all of the care subsequently 
has been with the occupational therapists and the physios and the hand care team. And actually the impactful things on my hand, and this is a very minor analogy, you know, are those people. And I think if anyone has ever been ill, you then really appreciate that broad breadth of healthcare team. And I hope seeing that in the media will help that too. I like the the sort of village analogy because, as you said, it's not a one-way sort of relationship. I kind of think of the ICU consultant as like the mayor. They're sort of put in charge, but, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't mean you're always in charge. But, you know, other people are equally important. The mayor is not important when the house is on fire. You want the fireman. Uh, when there's a criminal running loose, you want the police. So depending on what the, the sort of task is, best person should be doing the job and that's sort of how I kind of think of ICU from what I've experienced what I've read what I've heard and but I think kind of very poetic about the the symphony and I think that's what kind of draws people to it it's a it's a lovely thought and my my analogy is a bit more uh, mundane and sort of everyday life and perhaps has a has a less of a sort of impact that way I've got a couple more questions. The first one is, what would you say is the hardest thing about life in ICU as as a doctor? Well, people often assume it's how do you deal with the stress or the emotional side of it, breaking bad news to families. And for me, that is a hugely important part of my job. And I want to be as, as good as that part as all the others as procedures and all the exciting things. I think that's essential. The truth is some people, when they see and do a lot of that, especially the breaking bad news, it does impact them. And there's this phrase of, you know, those we carry. So, you know, you carry a lot of that with you. And there's another really powerful phrase from Liz Crow, who's a, who's a consultant social worker in Australia, who uses the phrase, sometimes we just have to sit in the rubble with families. And that can be deeply impactful. But for me, it actually makes me appreciate life. You know, seeing sad things in intensive care and, and talking to families makes me come home and hug my children that little bit tighter or not worry about that tax bill or a flat tire. It actually makes me appreciate life rather than makes me sad I, I guess the hardest thing is probably the complexity of bringing all those people together at different times and having to play different roles in different people at different points you know sometimes you need to be the leader sometimes you need to be very direct sometimes you need to be a listener sometimes you need to follow a lot and I think for me it's actually that that switching uh, which is the trickiest bit and that's been the same through COVID. I think I used to arrive at the automatic doors of my hospital. And when I entered them, I would leave a lot, a lot of me perhaps outside, you know, worries about minor worries about I don't know, school or children or, or family life and other things. And I think through COVID, because it's been so remarkable, a lot more of me then, if you like, has been coming through those doors so I think it's that switching for me, which is, is probably the hardest, uh, but appreciating that the breaking bad news and those emotional aspects are ones which are, are probably the most important. Okay. So the flip side of that question is, what's the best thing about working in ICU? 
Well, I think people would probably say it's the big things. It's the, you know, the big save, the doing that procedure and it goes really well. Actually, it's the little things, which are the best things. It's seeing somebody who you thought may not survive or you've had a difficult conversation with, seeing them walk past you in the street and, you know, not notice you. That's brilliant. That's absolutely fantastic. It means life has returned. It means something impactful has happened. And and it's the same in the book, actually. I've had random emails from people I've never met. And it's the little things that really puts a smile on my face. It's somebody wrote to me and said, I read the chapter about lungs and today I smoked my last cigarette. That's fantastic for me. I, I didn't write it for for anything else other than those little things. This month I had an email from somebody who did CPR on someone in the street for the first time. There's a passage in the book about how, how to do it in a very basic way. And that person that they did to survived. And so for me, it's those aspects which are the best. You've kind of covered my, my other alternate question that I had at the end there. Certainly from my side of it, the, the best thing in ICU is getting extubated. That's a wonderful thing. Sort of like the, the worst thing for me was kind of coming to the realization that the thing that I thought I could do yesterday, which was actually three weeks prior, I couldn't do. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't move anything. As far as my awake brain was concerned, I went to sleep. I woke up and now I can't do anything. Well, what's this? This is not fair. The other sort of most kind of poignant thing that I remember in at ICU is if you've raised your hand at any point. So I my vent was to my, my left. So if if you raise your left arm, you will never see ICU staff move anywhere near as fast as that. As I later found out, it's because a lot of people when they're agitated try and pull their, their tube. But for me, I was just going, it's really sore here. You know, it's kind of fell off its it stand and it was it was kind of pulling and I was like trying but yeah and when you can't talk things are very hard when you can't talk and you're you're not used to any other way of communicating so I remember having a tap board so like I think it was a wooden board that had the letters on it and then you would just kind of go like that even then that was problematic and that you know I'm like typing it out going as fast as I can and people are going I don't know what you're saying. You're going way too fast for me. And I'm like, I want my ideas out. You know, I want, I want my answers. And that kind of makes you quite, quite an angry person. Obviously I wasn't particularly pleasant in the initial stages of my recovery. I like to think I wasn't in the why me stage for, for very long, but I probably was. We've covered everything I had to ask. Was there anything you wanted to, to ask me? Yeah, well, I guess two brief things. And it, again, what you described there, that going to sleep and waking up, again, it, it makes me think that that person who taught me in medical school was right. You know, your frustrating thing was that story was missing. You know, there's there's a gulf of, of what happened, really. Um, ICU diaries have been something that have been discussed. And the other things I've heard people say, which were really difficult, are things... Perhaps I hadn't even thought of before, like thirst. Thirst was one symptom that 
patients who have survived often describe as being something really, really hard. And I'm, I'm slightly thirsty now and imagining that for prolonged periods, it's such a powerful human emotion. So, so I guess to summarize that in a question, how do you think as professionals in ICU, healthcare members of the team or, or just people, how can we better listen and hear what people are trying to tell us when either they're in ICU or they've left ICU? What is it that we should do more of? I think the problem with ICU is that ICU is not like a gastro ward where everybody's, everybody's in with something gastro-related. ICU, even if you're, you're separating to a neurological and a surgical and a general, there's still such a broad gamut of issues there that there, there isn't a sort of cure-all magic that we can can apply it's a very patient to patient thing the the sort of big things are if they need glasses if they need hearing aids they need to be like priority because particularly in my so i, I was in icu for a day after surgery surgery that didn't go particularly well not that long ago and i didn't have my glasses and if you were beyond my feet you are a sort of vague smudge and if you're not very aware that would be quite disturbing so those are things that that are big kind of getting methods of communication so if it's tap boards or whatever so that the patient can communicate in at least a limited form that's important because then there's a conversation can happen and then you can find out what the problem is with that specific patient and I know that tap boards aren't going to be something that everyone can use because perhaps they're they, they can't use their arms perhaps they don't have arms but I'm sure there's there's something else eye tracking stuff is quite proficient just now so I think basically the answer is there's no general solution there's not it's like a lot of things you have to think personal there's not a broad stroke that I think would fix it other than the sort of driving motion of make sure that they can hear, they can see if they have those senses still available or still active and try and you know have some sort of method that they can communicate with because once you start communication, things become a lot easier because if the patient's saying, I had a couple of times where I told them my lungs feel like they're filled with fluid and then they... They drained it and the, fir the first time nothing came up. I'm like, no, you, you, you need to do it again. I can't. And then they put it in. I think they must have put it in further because it went. <laughs> um, that'll be lovely on the podcast, that lovely noise. Um, but yeah, and then suddenly it was like, oh, yes, I can finally breathe. Even though I wasn't really breathing. But it's just a case of you can't be general. You have to be personal. That makes it quite hard. Because it wouldn't be nice to have a procedure where, yes, when patients come in, when they start to get weaned round, they start to get more conscious, we do this, 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 and then that will solve 90% of the problems. But unfortunately, I can't give a clean answer like that other than sort of produce an environment where they can sense properly, they can communicate. That's kind of the gist of it. Humanize the ICU, in other words. Yeah, oh, yeah. humanizing an ICU shouldn't, uh, like, like it should be standard 
Mm. I would like to think it's standard in a lot of the things the same guideline pointed out for delirium in ICU is that remembering that if the person needs it in their normal life, they're probably going to need it in ICU. Being able to see, being able to hear is kind of a big factor when normally you would. I think you said you had two questions, so was there something else? Uh, no, I rolled them into one, really. Oh, you rolled off. Um, and I guess the big thing to say is, you know, thank you to you, Mark, and the people who've already been on your podcast for talking about these issues, talking about issues which are difficult, talking about issues which don't always have a simple answer, because actually the difficult things in life are often the most important. And you know, having your voice heard and you being the surrogate of others who haven't had their voice heard for us, I think as a community is is fantastic. And it won't make you know it won't make a difference straight away. It won't make a difference today or tomorrow. But I think all of these things together a building and the, that concept of humanizing ICU, the concept of patient-related outcomes, the concept of follow-up and listening and time, uh, you know, I think all work together hugely and this podcast, I think, will be a, a really important part of that. So thank you. Obviously, when I thought about this podcast, I kind of looked at what existed because there's not no point in me sort of retreading. And I saw that there was, there's lots of ICU-based podcasts but I didn't find anyone that was ran by a patient. Uh, there, was, there was lots of them uh, that had patients involved. Oh, geez, I forgot the name. Uh, Kelly's podcast is called what, walk, walk Out the ICU, is it? Hi, so Editor's Note here. The name of the podcast is Walking Home from the ICU. I wouldn't usually add things in here, but uh, I thought it was important that the name was right. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, that, that's a very good podcast. It's very well done, uh, very slick. But obviously, coming from ICU professional, even involving patients, you know, I felt I didn't feel I could do it better because I, I don't. <laughs> but I think that I have different insights and the things that I want spoken about will get spoken about because it's it's my show and I kind of I, I dictate what what's getting spoken to. So I I have the ability to kind of make sure that the things I think are important are spoken about. I'm very fortunate and that I have quite a lot of ICU and and related fields friends now from from speaking at conferences from being kind of vocal on twitter and things like that uh and when i launched this as an idea everybody was like this is great and that allowed me to message you because i didn't i i knew who you were i, I had your book obviously but i went oh well i'll just ask dr morgan you know the worst thing he can say is no and if he says no then that that's fine but i thought if i don't ask him he's not gonna he's he's not necessarily going to come on so i'll just ask him uh, and did so i thought well, well that's quite good because i want i want it to be as wide as i can i want to try and get as many different fields in i'm hoping and uh, i'm sort of i'm sort of starting with the traditional icu professions because i think that's the hook you know people will that's what they'll expect they expect nurses they expect doctors going to use that get people and talk about the big issues and then slowly introduce the the sort of lesser spoken about if i can get people uh and, and talk about those things and talk with other patients and if i can find 
patient families, then get them on. So the, the, the whole point of this was to be as inclusive as I can, cover as much as I can, while I still have time, energy, ability, and will, because the more I get unwell, the less I feel I can do things. I just want to thank you for coming on, and I want to offer you the opportunity now to speak about any projects you have about your book or anything else you want to talk about. Yeah, I guess um, most things that are happening, uh, I, I can write about on Twitter, which is at uh, Dr. Underscore Matt Morgan on Twitter. So most of my writing, be it aimed at the public or at professionals, uh, goes on there, really. So th those are the main projects I'm doing. Uh, I'm in the middle of writing a, a second book, actually, which is going to be a little bit different. Uh, the working title is How Kissing a Frog Can Save Your Life. And it actually looks at how understanding animal physiology and how animals cope in extreme environments may help us treat critically ill humans with with disease uh, so for example how does a giraffe breathe through a two meter long thin neck it's remarkable how it does it and now we treat people with asthma using many of the same techniques as how a giraffe breathes with a really long neck so this year was going to be a, a year of traveling and meeting animals in their natural environments. Slightly different because of uh, the pandemic, but it's uh, on track to be published in October 2021. So that's uh, what I'm working on outside of uh, intensive care at the minute. That sounds very interesting. And obviously, physiologically, those animals have solved a problem that we're, we're developing and nature usually finds the best solution in those circumstances so why why try and change the wheel when the wheel exists so i just i just want to thank you again for coming on and just say if anyone has any questions or any feedback or anything you can leave a voice message on the anchor platform or you can tweet me at icu underscore life or you can email me at icu.life dot and dot recovery at gmail.com and that's me uh, thank you dr morgan for joining me and i hope everyone enjoyed this and thank you thanks thank you mark